These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources in partnership with the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. Promotional support provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine and partial funding provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Thanks so much for joining us today on Market Journal. I'm Bryce Duskit. Well, what a week it has already been here in Nebraska. Of course, winter storms have covered the countryside for many of us in central and eastern Nebraska. And now, brace yourselves all across the region for what meteorologists are calling an Arctic blast. But hey, we've got a warmth of good company and great content ahead here on Market Journal. Coming up on the show, we're going to be looking ahead and discussing ways to avoid white mold in your soybeans during the growing season. Plus, stick around for some exciting news about upcoming events tailored just for crop and livestock producers. Things that can make a real difference for your operation. Plus, we'll dive deep into the livestock markets with UNL's Elliot Dennis. That's what we have coming up on the show, but first. A quick heads up for livestock producers. If you were impacted by drought or fire last year, now is the time to connect with your local county FSA office to discuss financial assistance. Now, you won't want to delay as the deadline is coming up quite quickly at the end of this month. For the 2023 program year, a large number of Nebraska counties met the drought severity levels on the U.S. Drought Monitor that triggers LFP for native pastures and other impacts. ELAP also uses the U.S. Drought Monitor as a trigger mechanism, but also has other program triggers depending on whether a producer is applying for assistance due to drought or due to losses related to wildfire. LFP provides payments to eligible livestock producers and contract growers who have at a risk in eligible grazing land or produce forage crops for grazing and have suffered losses due to a qualifying drought during the normal grazing period. Hence, producers must have a risk in both the livestock and the grazing land. ELAP, on the other hand, provides eligible producers with compensation for certain feed losses not covered by LFP. This includes feed and grazing losses associated with wildfire, as well as drought assistance with transporting water to grazing livestock transporting feed to grazing livestock, and transporting livestock to new grazing locations. Again, producers must have risk in both the livestock and the grazing land. In addition to cattle, eligible livestock for both programs can include alpacas, buffalo or bison, goats, sheep, and others who have been or would have been grazing the eligible grazing land or pasture land during the normal grazing period. If you're eager to streamline the application process, here's a pro tip for you. Begin to gather those important documents now. For the Livestock Forage Program, having those grazing leases or grower agreements at the ready. And for ELAP, think about the transportation details for your livestock feed, such as the number of loads and the miles traveled. For water assistance, keep tabs on the number of loads as well as gallons. For more specifics, of course, reach out to your local FSA office. 
Shifting gears a bit, as we all know, winter months can be a good time to plan ahead for the spring and the upcoming growing season. Nebraska Extension has your back on that front. Right now, they've got a big lineup of workshops spread across the state, tailor-made for crop and livestock producers. Those workshops are more than just events. They're an opportunity to get a leg up on the game. Let's hand things over now to Market Journal producer Bill Dodd as he brings us the inside scoop on those events. Thanks, Bryce. That's right. There are a couple of educational clinics focused on crop production and calving that could be beneficial to many of our state's crop and livestock producers. And coming up next week, Nebraska Extension will be hosting several crop production clinics along the I-80 corridor. If you're looking to hit the ground running during the 2024 growing season, there are three more opportunities to enroll for crop production clinics being held January 17th at the Lachlan Country Club in Hastings, Nebraska, January 19th at the Holthus Convention Center in York, and finally at the Eunice Conference Center in Kearney. I'd say there's kind of two two things we're, we're trying to do. One is really looking at pesticide applicator recertification. So this is the, the process that folks go through every three years to get their applicator's license renewed. And so there's a, there's a handful of topics that, that the EPA wants uh, applicators to, to cover on a continuing basis. And so we're going over some of that, but a lot of it is also tied to what are some of the new pests that we see coming up um, in this past year and kind of looking forward to the next year. And so tar spot is, is a topic that we're continuing to cover in corn. Uh, soybean gall midge is one that, that we're, we're still talking about. Uh, looking at a little bit at some application technology parameters, some things we can think about on that side. So that would be uh, one of the tracks of so the two tracks that we cover. It would be kind of related to that pest management and, and applicator recertification. And then the other track is really more around crop management, agribusiness um, uh, type topics. And so uh, we have a range of different things this year we're looking at. Uh, we have a session kind of combined looking at nitrogen and water management into a, a combined session, uh, knowing that those two topics tend to intersect each other. There's overlap between the two. And so uh, we put together a, a couple of talks that that try to look at it more holistically. Um, you know, what are the what are the intersections between how you manage your irrigation uh, as well as, as nitrogen management? We're doing a little bit on on soil health. And so uh, that's that's been a topic over the last number of years that there's certainly been interest around. There's a whole suite of different tests that can be done to evaluate soil health. Uh, and uh, so how do you narrow that down? How do you how do you kind of pick and choose for what you're trying to understand in your operation? Maybe what are some of the uh, the better options out there? So you don't maybe have to do all 37 or whatever that number is of, of the different tests, but can you narrow it down to a couple that might give you some targeted information? So I think that's part of the, the topic there. And then I know there's some sensor-based nitrogen management. So there's been a number of on-farm studies and, and work over the last number of years looking at that sensor-based nitrogen management in corn. And so I think this is kind of summarizing and highlighting some of those some of those topics. So that I think maybe a snapshot at some of the different things that we have coming up uh, across our different clinics. Coming up on the 18th and 19th of January in Sydney and Curtis, Nebraska, respectively, will be two hands-on calving workshops that will cover topics including calving equipment and proper use. So the topics that will be covered will include um, different types of calving equipment and how to properly use those, um, some techniques for managing dystocia, so how you can help assist that cow if needed, and so whether that's um, how the calf is presented, maybe the calf is a um, backwards uh, presentation, so just how you can assist that calf so it comes out healthy, and we are also taking into consideration that, that health of the cow as well. Um, and then just knowing when to call for help, when to knowing when to call the vet, 
Um, Dr. Becky Funk and Dr. Lindsay Wechter Mead will be our presenters and um, they have a life size model cow and calf. And so they're going to use that to do lots of demonstrations and training with participants on, on how to best assist the cow when needed. I think a, a common goal with calving is really to produce a healthy calf crop and again, take into consideration of the health of that cow as well. Um, that way she can rebreed and stay in the herd. And so really regardless of your experience with calving, I, I think anyone could benefit from attending this. Uh, it would be a good refresher for some and, and for others, I mean, you may take away some tips and techniques to help you when you get in that situation where you need to assist the cow. To recap, the calving workshops will be held in Sydney, Nebraska on January 18th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time at the South Platte NRD building, and again on January 19th at 1 p.m. Central Time at the NCTA Livestock Teaching Center in Curtis, Nebraska. There is a $30 registration fee associated with these events. If you would like to attend either of these events, you're encouraged to reach out to Aaron Berger for the Sydney event or to Aaron Labory for the event in Curtis. And finally, if you'd like to attend one of the crop production clinics, you have three more opportunities to do so. First will be January 17th at the Lachlan Country Club in Hastings, Nebraska, January 19th at the Holthus Convention Center in York, and January 23rd at the Eunice Conference Center in Kearney. Now on side note, the January 23rd event in Kearney will be held in conjunction with the Nebraska Agribusiness Association Expo taking place at the same location. So there's a bit of a buy one get one offer there if you're so inclined. Now if you have any program questions, you're encouraged to reach out to Chris Proctor by email or phone, and that information is there at the bottom of your screen for you now. If you'd like to register for any of these events, we'll have a direct link attached to this story over on the Market Journal website. For now, we'll send it back to you, Bryce. All right, thank you very much for that story, Bill. It is appreciated. Let's shift our focus now and take a look at what's happening when it comes to the livestock markets. Joining us is Elliot Dennis. Elliot, always good to have you here on the Market Journal desk. Thanks for coming back. Yes, thanks for having me again. Let's get your general feel of the cattle market in particular here, early 2024. How do you see things? Yeah, so when we're talking about, we really have to focus on the cattle on feed report. A lot of heavy inventory right, right away. And so we're carrying that inventory into 2024. And there's reasons why we're doing that. Feed costs are down and cattle prices for feeder cattle to replace those are, are up. And so we're seeing really heavy weights and a lot of inventory out there. And a lot, if we compare this to where we were at, the closest comparison is really 2021. And if you think back, that was with COVID and we were struggling with getting through a lot of the backlog and processing capacity. Prices would generally go over the last five to seven years have generally go up about two to three dollars a hundred weight from where we see it in January to about that April, June contract. Um, this is on the cash basis. And when we think about it, where we are at, that went up to about $20 in 2019. We're not gonna see that run up. And so when compare where we're at to where we could be, we're thinking in that 180 range at a kind of a high level, we're probably not gonna be at that 190, 190 plus range that we were seeing on the futures market back in September, at least for the April contract. Yeah, I wanna get your thoughts. Uh, obviously the, the story to start this week was the snowstorm that is persisted with another system moving through yeah. later in the week. And then we've got these Arctic temperatures. USDA comes out with the estimated slaughter, both for hogs and pigs. Were you able to track the numbers, see if uh, plants were disrupted by this snowstorm? And I guess as we look ahead, how, how disrupted could they be? Yeah, there would definitely be a disruption that, that is coming out there. We're seeing places like the Holcomb uh, Kansas plant, that one's, you know, shut down at least temporarily. We have other plants that are kind of idling 
A lot of that has to do with worker safety. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a similar situation if we think about to other plant closures. This would be, I would say, probably in that more realm of like general maintenance, although this wasn't scheduled. What that ultimately does from a producer perspective is it, it kind of limits upward price movement. We've seen that really middling value in, in the cash market. We've seen that also in the futures market. That, that's really what that puts downward pressure on price because we just have more supply availability and it's a shock. That has nothing structural to do with the plants being able to function or we can actually, when those storms move through, we'll be able to process. And where do we make that up? We make it up in the Saturday kill. Yeah. Kind of a two-part question for you. How is beef demand right now and how does that look when it comes to box beef prices? Yeah, so when we think about the box beef cutout, it's actually a composition of the actual primal. So we have like the rib, the loin, the round. So all of that kind of constitute uh, what we call the box beef cutout. And really in the last part of 2023, we were seeing a lot of these other values like ground beef and the 50s and the rounds. Those were really kind of depressed, but that box beef price was hanging strong. And the reason that was is because a lot of that uh, was in the rib. And so we had a strong rib value. Well, if you've seen the rib value, it's dropped almost $100 a hundredweight in the last you know, month. And so that's why we're starting to see some of that you know, relaxing on that box beef price. And that has a strong indication of like consumers are basically tapping out a little bit on what they're able to willing to pay. If you see the meat demand monitor from Kansas State, that shows very strong indications that consumers are reaching kind of a point where they're not willing to pay uh, a little bit more. Ultimately, that means is we have to balance what they're willing to pay and that total supply coming through the pipeline. Okay, you mentioned the Catalan feed reports. Also happening this month, we have the uh, yearly, or I said, should say happens twice a year, it's the cattle inventory report. What are you going to be watching when that report comes out later this, this month? Yes, the big is, you know, what is the cold cow numbers going to look like and total cows that we have to breed and the heifer retention. Everyone's talking about where we're at and rebuilding the herd. That has to, everything to do with whip number of cows that we have and the number of heifers that we're going to retain. Cows really determine what the, the feeder's cattle supply will look like going into this year. Heifer retention looks like what we're going to herd rebuilding in 2025. We'll look at where we're at in cold cow slaughter. We are above the five-year average, but below 2022 at our slaughter, which was very high. We're going to see a reduction uh, potentially in that herd still, and so we're thinking those are the two numbers that I'm really looking at. Of course, when we go to the July inventory report, we're thinking about how many of those cows actually calved. And there's ways that we can think about producers managing some of that risk. Let's pause on the cattle, come back to that here in a little bit. Want to get your thoughts on the uh, the hogs and pigs side of things, though. Lean hog market, I guess, has rallied a little bit here in 2024. Any particular reason why? Well, we're thinking about some of it has to do with some of the adjustments that happened. USDA came out with their adjustments. We're thinking about strong, basically, sow reports that have been out there. And really we're talking about, this is kind of a larger impact on what Prop 12 is, is really doing. And so we're thinking about where that's at and how that's restructuring the market. We have geographical distribution of where those sow farms are gonna be. And I think there's just still a lot of uncertainty about you know, where, how much demand is actually gonna go into California. We know that they're strong. Does it just change product? Does it come pre-cooked? There's a lot of that things. A lot of, I, was, I see a lot of uncertainty in in the hog market this year, something I'm going to be watching a lot more closely, just given this is really just a fundamental market change. 
We bring up Proposition 12. Of course, a lot of our viewers are very familiar with that issue, but for those not, it has to do with the amount of space that uh, the California voters decided uh, hog has to have uh, to be sold as pork in the state of California. How much, uh, you look at these challenging prices for pork producers, how much of that can you attribute to uh, the challenges in that market, Proposition 12 that is, versus something else like exports? Yeah, so I mean, exports are a huge component that's been weakening on some on the, on the hog side, and so that's been de decreasing prices. But when we also think about we're having really good litter rates, and so that means, you know, instead of a lot of these, you know, animals dying before they're actually able to reach their full maturity, that's been some of the strongest levels since we've seen PEBB, you know, so, so that's also contributing. That's putting some downward pressure on, on prices. And just hog margins in general have been, have been very low. And so you kind of put all those things together and it, it, it becomes a challenging marketing situation, especially for people who are sow producers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's wrap up with this. You mentioned uh, something that uh, producers should be aware of back on the cattle and calves front. WCRP, that's an acronym. What's it stand for, Elliot? It's called Wing Calf Risk Protection. And essentially what that is, it's a USDA RMA product. It's federally subsidized. And essentially it's going to cover total weaning weight. And so you think about your total number of animals, total weaning weight. Basically it can provide some protection against that. And there's lots of variation for people who are familiar with crop insurance, it functions more like yield protection and revenue protection. And so the reason why I bring it up is it is has kind of like a set deadline. USDA RMA is gonna come out with prices and products January 15th. You have producers have till January 31st to basically make a decision, which will be valid the entire production year till November. And so if it's something you're interested, in, it's important to be kind of prudent and, and diligent beforehand uh, find an agent who might be interested at the Center for Agriculture Profitability at the University of Nebraska. We've, we're doing, we've done a webinar in, uh, this past week and we'll do a, one in the following week. So that kind of explains a little bit about what the product is, how it's priced, and what are some strategies that can be used. And it's important also to note that wing calf risk protection precludes you from using livestock risk protection. So if that's something you've been using in the past, then it's, it's important to kind of weigh those strategies. Always good stuff there with Elliot. We appreciate him joining us. We also enjoy when we get questions from you, our audience. So if you have one for one of our future brokers, go ahead and email us or get in touch on social media, and I'll be sure to pass your question along. The Center for Rural Affairs began 50 years ago, and the agency has existed because rural residents and farmers saw an important need that was not being addressed. Much of the early work of that agency was with small farmers on production issues and alternative energy and production systems. Today, that continues to be a focus, along with rural policy development on the local, state, and national levels. You can learn more about the Center for Rural Affairs in the January issue of the Nebraska Farmer. Well, it's now time for weather with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, things have definitely cooled down quite a bit across the region. My question for you today is how long can we expect these frigid temperatures? Well, thanks, Bryce. With the polar vortex split, we're going to have a very cold week ahead and potentially even into the week after this next. Start by taking a look at the next couple of days, though. Very, very cold Monday through Monday and Tuesday. Wind chills may get as cold as 50 below in parts of northeastern Nebraska on Sunday morning. And again, I think the entire state can expect at least some period of time with wind chills of 30 or 40 below. And we're probably looking at at least two or three days where we could have wind chills of 30 to 40 below in the eastern half of the state. 
Again, if you live east of Grand Island, you're probably looking at at least 60 hours of uh, consecutive hours of sub-zero temperatures, uh, maybe even 72 to 80. Uh, this is probably the longest stretch of sub-zero temperatures we've had at least in three years. And we might have even have to go back in December of 1989 to find a comparable stretch of sub-zero weather across eastern Nebraska. You'll have some periodic chances for light snow on, on through Monday, uh, particularly across the panhandle of southwestern Nebraska. We're not expecting any major accumulations at this time, though. Uh, the good news is we will be moderating somewhat by middle of the week. Uh, and again, it looks like west central and southwestern Nebraska probably will get above freezing during the day on Wednesday. That might even push as far east as York or even Lincoln. Uh, but even 25 degrees by Wednesday probably will feel like a heat wave to many of us. Uh, unfortunately, with the polar vortex split, uh, we'll probably have another intrusion of cold air by the end of this next week. Uh, so look for a cold front to come through the state somewhere between Thursday night and Friday night. Afterward, it'll probably be very cold again, likely highs in the single digits, particularly in eastern Nebraska. This doesn't look to affect western Nebraska quite as much, uh, so you might stay just more seasonally cold uh, next, this next coming weekend. Uh, again, the CPC is pretty bullish on it being cold uh, from January 18th to 24th, so this 8 to 14 day period. Uh, the good news, though, is it looks like we will get a little break from the snow. Now, again, we could use some moisture for most of the state, uh, but we probably, I'm sure a lot of us would probably welcome a little break for having to scoop or get the snowblower out. Uh, the good news with the drought monitor is that we actually now have no exceptional drought anywhere in the state, uh, and that's the first time since at least early part of uh, early summer of 2022. Uh, we still have a large area of extreme drought, but we have definitely seen some improvements in the last month with the precipitation we had kind of from mid-December uh, through earlier this week where we had quite a bit of snowfall across uh, most of this area. Uh, speaking of precipitation, uh, this is probably a little bit overdone. I don't think this be we didn't actually pick up over an inch in some parts of eastern Nebraska, uh, but we certainly picked up three quarters of an inch in a lot of places and some places did melt out over an inch of liquid water with the, with the snow that we had. And snow mounts uh, from earlier this week, we had over a foot uh, from kind of Norfolk down to Columbus and up into Dakota County. Uh, heavier snowfall total is still out uh, kind of between Grand Island and Lincoln. Uh, here on East Campus, we had right about six inches, uh, and that was, uh, we probably lost about three inches in terms of uh, uh, that melted during the day. Uh, soil temperature is still relatively mild for this time of year, kind of right around the freezing mark, give or take a couple of degrees. Soil moisture has definitely improved a lot since October. Now still on the dry side across southeast Nebraska, and we've been quite dry across southwestern Nebraska and the southern panhandle, almost kind of sneaky dry here in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months rather. Uh, current snow cover right now, uh, again, uh, quite a bit of snow cover going up to the Canadian prairies, and that'll help keep us uh, pretty cold for this next cold spell. Thanks, back to you, Bryce. All right, thanks for the update, Eric. Mother Nature uh, definitely has a lot in store for us here this January. Finally, here on the show today, white mold has been an increasing threat for soybean producers across the region. During these slower winter months, there can be some steps you can take to reduce the risk of white mold in your fields come spring and fall. We're recently joined by Nebraska Extension plant pathologist Dylan Mangel to get his advice on that subject. It's good to see you. We're in the midst of winter meeting season, which means you're hearing from a lot of producers what went well, some of the challenges also in 2023. Understand something you're getting asked a lot about right now is white mold. What's the story there? That's right. Yeah, we've had a, a surprising amount of questions on white mold. We knew it was bad in 2023, but I just don't think we knew exactly how bad it was. And from growers all over the state, especially in areas we're not used to seeing it, growers really experienced it last year. Okay, let's back up a little bit, talk about what is white mold and what's it look like out in the field? So white mold is also called sclerotinia stem rot. It's a fungus that's going to grow. Uh, it's going to stay in the soil. And then when the moisture gets right in the springtime, it'll pop up and it'll infect those those plants. Uh, the problem with this one is it can stay in the soil for a long time. You're really not going to get rid of it once it's in a field. Um, 
but what happens when it gets on those plants is it infects through the flowers and then there's a period of delay before you start to see symptoms that could last several weeks and then into August you'll start to see those symptoms show up on the plant which looks like um, like a cottony uh, fluffy mold um, growing starting on the stem from where that infection point was and radiating up and down that stem until it kills the plant. What kind of yield loss is associated with white mold? It really depends how many plants you, you lose. So we've got growers that you'll experience just a couple intermittent plants that were lost and you're not going to see a lot but those plants will be dead. Um, but there's also cases where it'll show up in big pockets and on the yield monitor you'll just see yields drop down to basically nothing where you've lost the plants in those areas. And where geographically in Nebraska are you hearing reports from this past year? So traditionally it's been in northwest or northeast Nebraska in those rain-fed areas, but what happened this year is um, it really showed up as far south as the, the Kansas border, not at high levels, but um, there's definitely pockets through the irrigated parts of the state as well as that traditional area up in the northeast that really suffered from it. You mentioned flowering is kind of the time where you're going to start to see this in irrigated and maybe more heavily rain-fed areas or where it's impacted. Why is that? Bring us through the science of how this works. So the plant uh, is only susceptible during flowering because that fungus has to infect those flowers and, and that's the only place it can get into the plant. Um, when you get moisture and that, that, that aligns with that flowering window and you know there's a lot of flowering windows on beans now that are quite long so when you get that moisture those spores are going to develop then in the, the, on the soil surface and they'll move up and they'll infect those plants right when that moisture shows up if the plant is susceptible then. Obviously as we look back on last year, nothing we could do about it in the rearview mm -hmm. mirror, but moving forward if you identify white mold in your field, what can you do in 2024 about this? So in 2024, if you start to see white mold, the, the only thing you can really do in season is try to protect those plants. Um, you've got to get there and protect the plants before they're infected though. That's going to be happening when flowers are present. So as soon as R1 shows up and you've got flowers present um, and the plant grows to be more susceptible as there's more present, so into R2, that's when you need to protect those plants. This also aligns with canopy closure. So you've got to protect those flowers. I, I generally recommend aiming treatments towards late R1, early R2, right about when canopy closes is going to be that optimal timing to protect those with a foliar fungicide. Now that's what you can do in season. Uh, but leading into 2024, if you still have time and variety selection, think about pitting a variety on those white mold fields or fields that have had a history of that in the past uh, that has a good rating, a good disease rating for white mold. You told me too, how uh, much space you have in between your rows might uh, play a factor, those with a 15 inch uh, spacing. Yep, so when it comes to white mold, it's all about managing moisture in those plots and that humidity under the canopy surface. So. Uh, Growers have had success in the past moving from 15 inch rows to 30 inch rows uh, where they've had a history of white mold. Now there's downsides to increasing your row spacing too, so think about what your other problems are um, and decide if white mold's severe enough, opening those rows up a little bit is going to let air get through there a little bit better. It's going to delay canopy closure and it'll delay, it'll shorten that susceptibility window for white mold. The key here, Dylan, is we're in these winter months. Think about what happened in 23. Let's be a little mm -hmm. more, uh, you know, proactive, see what we can do. Uh, seed selection and row spacing wide. Yep. There are row spacings here ahead of the 2024 growing season. Final word is yours, Dylan. What else do you want to share? If you've got any other questions on that, go to cropwatch.unl.edu and search for white mold. As you heard Dylan mention earlier, if you have any additional questions about white mold or really any pathogens that may frequent your fields, you can find your answers over at the website cropwatch.unl.edu.
That is going to do it for this week's show. If you did happen to miss a story or want to go back and watch one of our previous shows, you can follow Market Journal on social media. Also, be sure to subscribe to the channel over on YouTube. We hope to see you back here next time. But until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.